morning. And, uh, you know, there has always been curiosity and debate over what happens after we die. And I, uh, I recognize the irony of the fact that this sermon was planned for today, just six days after Miss Ellie passed away. And so uh, this isn't a sermon preached because she passed away. This was, uh, as you guys know, we're marching through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. And uh, this is what was on the uh, schedule for today. So uh, I believe God wants to speak to us today. But anyway, those, those beliefs vary in many ways. There's the, there's the absolute end that people believe that, hey, nothing happens. You're dead. Life ends. Body goes in the ground. It's over. It's, it's an absolute end. There's a, there's a belief out there that you're reborn immediately after death. Like your, your spirit is cycled. Like you die, you're reborn in, uh, as a child somewhere in the world different. Uh, for some, they use this idea to explain the whole kind of deja vu moment sometimes we have. They think that you're reborn immediately. And then there's the belief of the reincarnation into other living forms. So you could be reincarnated uh, as a plant, as an insect, as a different human being in a different culture. Um, and the reasons why vary depending on the form of religion, but just the, the idea of reincarnation into another living form. And then there's a belief that after you die, you, you live as a spirit or a ghost and you roam the earth or uh, maybe you're present in a place that was special, a home, a graveyard, uh, uh, those kinds of things that there's just this, uh, your body is dead, but your spirit or your ghost kind of roams uh, around the earth. Um, there's also the idea that when you, uh, when you die, your body dies but that your consciousness is joined to other consciousnesses in the cosmos, out in space, and it's the collective knowledge that helps propel mankind and those kinds of things. And then as the picture shows here in the, in the, in the bottom pip here, that, uh, that you will transition into another world. And uh, kings uh, were buried with their possessions because of this thought. That as they moved into another world, uh, they would have uh, their riches with them. They would have their items. They might have their servants. They might even have been buried with their family. Some kings, uh, when they died, their wives and their children uh, were buried with them so that they could carry them into their other world. In fact, uh, if you've heard of terracotta, here's a, here's a picture of that. Uh, the king uh, had sculptures made of an army with horses and chariots and all these kinds of things. So when he entered the other world, he'd have the might and the power to conquer there as well. Uh, so there's that idea that we transition just to an, uh, a different realm, a different world. Uh, there's the thought that after you die, um, that you're going to have to go to hell and do time there, kind of like prison. And when you've done the amount of time necessary for, the, for your sins here on earth... Uh, once that time has been paid, then you'll transition and have access to heaven. And then there's many, many, many other views out there. Those are just some of the, some of the, the uh, prominent ones. And so, Scripture gives us a very clear picture of what happens after I die. 
Uh, and the answer is foundational to our faith. Uh, I referenced Hebrews chapter 6 earlier for you, and we're going to read through verses 1 and 2 together. In the NIV, it says this, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, which Pastor Sean preached about last week, and then lastly, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And these are the two that we're going to look at today as we bring this foundational piece of our spiritual home together. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, before we jump into these two, let me, let me say this. that There is a lot of scripture around these two uh, pieces, and there are a lot of details surrounding these two ideas. Uh, our goal today is to look at them broadly from a foundational perspective. Uh, there are people who spend their life studying these topics and uh, gathering theology and positions and opinions and many uh, church segments within Christianity are divided on some of those nuances uh, about those interpretations. It's not my goal today to get into those little nuances but talk you about broadly the idea of the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. So I want to make sure I say that because you might respond and say, hey, pastor, you forgot this verse, or what about you got this verse, or you didn't include this verse, and I'm well aware uh, of all of the verses that are not in the sermon today. Um, so I've chosen uh, the ones that I've chosen because they speak uh, to the foundational aspect of where we're going. So first, let's, let's reel in and let's talk about the first piece, the resurrection of the dead. Now, the idea of the resurrection of the dead is a, is a basic teaching in Scripture, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We can see examples of it. We can find Scriptures where, peop, where God's people uh, believed in uh, the resurrection of the dead. Nevertheless, uh, there were definitely people who doubted it, and there was a segment of the population who didn't believe in resurrection at all. And you can see that in the New Testament where they challenged Jesus on that uh, in his teachings as well. But Paul deals with this uh, really specifically in, uh, to where we're going today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Really, almost the entire chapter it just deals with resurrection. And I would encourage you to read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, read it in multiple translations. Read it in the English Standard Version, the ESV. Read it in the NIV, the New International Version. Read it in the NLT, the New Living Translation. Uh, it just will give you a well-rounded understanding of what uh, Paul is talking about. But for the sake of us, so we don't have to read through it all, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he's saying, hey, uh, some of you are saying there's no resurrection. When we die, we die. We're not... And he says, hey, if, if Christ is preached and you believe that Christ was raised, how can you say there's 
no resurrection. He says if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. You see, a key component of our faith is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in power and that he was resurrected to heaven where he's with the Father. That's that's an integral part of our faith and our belief. And so Paul is saying, listen, if if you believe that Christ was raised from the dead and has ascended to heaven, then you will be raised from the dead. Christ is the first of many. He He is our example if Christ's been raised, then so will you. That's, that's Paul's argument when we talk about resurrection of the dead. Our hope of resurrection, our belief of resurrection, is rooted and grounded in the example of Jesus Christ. And so when you, if you have uh, questions and, and concerns as the people who Paul was addressing here, like, geez, are we, am I really going to be raised From the dead, that seems odd. Our example is Jesus Christ. He's always our example. He's our example in all things. And so the doubt there is removed and the example is given to us in Christ. Now the next, to me, logical question, and we laughed about this a bit on Wednesday night in our Bible study. It comes up in in, uh, verse 35. He says, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? I mean, what kind of body will they come? And uh, you start to think to yourself, well, geez, I'm not so sure I want to see this body raised from the dead. Right? Like, what's that going to look like if, it's, if what I have is raised and after it's been in the ground? And what will that even look like? And, you know, ideas of the living dead and zombies and all these kinds of things start flooding the mind when you start talking about uh, this question. So it's a, it's a legitimate question. Some will say, well, how is that going to happen? And what is that going to look like? In other words, what are the details? Can you shed some light on that? What do you mean by we're going to be raised from the dead? And Paul goes in and he addresses this in uh, verses 36 and on. And he compares it to a seed. And and for me, I love this comparison. I like to garden. And so, uh, let's read that. Verses 36 through 38. How foolish. He's saying, hey, you're, you're being silly here and asking this question. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 37. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So he's like, hey, you don't... You don't take a fully established plant and bury it in the ground. You take the seed, and it goes in the ground. It's dead. It appears dead. It goes in the ground, and then it sprouts. And what comes from that is the, is the new life and the new plant. He says, but God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body. And this is a great analogy for us to understand that Our physical bodies, when they die, it's kind of like a seed being planted in the ground. And what is raised imperishable really looks nothing like what was planted in the ground. Now, I know you say, wow, what's my body going to look like? I don't know. God's going to determine that. But I promise you this, it's not going to look like it does now. Foundational. 
Uh, we could, that's where people get in disagreements over, well, what kind of body? What's this going to look? What's that? Like, um, speculative, find some piece of information here and there. What Scripture tells us clearly is that what's planted in the ground is not going to look anything like what comes out. In fact, he, he says this in verse 53 and verse 54. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. What is he saying? Uh, verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Here's the thing. This body that I live in is not uh, suitable for a life of immortality and eternity. It, it's a body that is, uh, and you know this if you're over 40, you may know this even if you're younger than that, that at a certain point you start to break down. Right? The, the joints all of a sudden don't work, you're a little stiff, you got a crick here, and then it's just right, arthritis, you know, all of these kinds of issues. And there's almost everyone in the room with me right now is saying, Amen, we know what you're saying, Pastor. Right? Because we know that this body isn't capable, it's not suitable for living for eternity. We're not superheroes. And so if we're going to be people who live for eternity, who experience immortality, this body has to change. And so this is what Scripture is saying. He's saying that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, at that moment when what is subject to death and decay is clothed with and transforms into something that will not be, at that moment, death has lost. Because death no longer has a hold. And that's the promise when we talk about this resurrection of the dead and the teaching that Scripture tells us that, hey, when you die, this body that is broken, that is susceptible to death and decay and all these kinds of things, when it's sown into the ground... It's going to be raised imperishable, suitable for a life of eternity and immortality. And man, that's, I don't know about you, uh, but when, we, when it says we are going to be resurrected and transformed and given a body suitable for eternity and immortality, that's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to me. I mean, I'm not super old. I'm kind of middle-aged somewhere, and I, I already have, like, chinks in the armor where I just can't do what I used to do and feel what I never felt before and all those kinds of things. And so I, I know when I get to the end of my lifespan, I'm going to be exceedingly happy to get a new model of this. That's for sure. Amen. <laughs> Several amens. <laughs> so something for us teaching-wise to look forward to that we're going to be raised from the dead and you're not going to be raised as you were planted, but you're going to be raised new and different. Let's jump to eternal judgment and what Scripture says about that, and then we'll tie these things together. A uh, lot, again, lot of Scripture around eternal judgment, and the and G, even Jesus, uh, which we get mo our reliable teaching from, he says a lot about it as well. But for me, I chose Matthew chapter twenty-five. The entire chapter are three stories that Jesus uses to describe what will happen at the end times, okay? The first story is this. It's found in verses 1 through 13, and it's about 10 bridesmaids. Now, uh, many translations say virgins. 
uh, or young women. Uh, they, were, they were part of a wedding ceremony. Uh, they were unmarried. Ten young women uh, in that culture uh, would mean they were virgins. And they were waiting for the bridegroom. And five were prepared and five were not. Uh, you can read the story. And the five that were not prepared had to go get prepared. And in the time that they were going and getting what they needed, they came back and they missed the wedding. And so the, the, the main thought of this story is this, that we don't know when the end is going to come. We don't know the hour. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We just don't know. And, and we need to understand that. Like, uh, You're not going to know the day that Jesus comes until he's here. And so anybody who tells you, hey, this day Jesus is when he's going to come back, I know because i got special revelation, they're a liar. Ignore them. Uh, the second story we see here is this in verses 14 through 30. And that's the story of this. It's a story of three servants. And this story talks about the, the master who goes away and he entrusts his wealth to these three servants. And he expects that they're going to take care of and manage his wealth accordingly, that they're going to continue to accrue wealth because we know that when you, uh, it takes money to make money, right? That as he, they're going to apply his wealth, that they're going to grow his financial kingdom, so to speak. And so we find that there are two that are faithful and there is one that is not. And the, and the main thing we get from this story is, is this. We get that God expects us to live in the state of readiness. That we're, we're, we're doing his business. We're not just like kicking back and we're going to wait for the day he comes and then we're going to be like, hey, we're here. Like He expects us to, to be at work doing the things he's given us to do. This, this state of be faithful with, with his. And we see here that there's one that's not faithful. And when, and when the master comes back, he rewards those who were faithful, and then he severely punishes the one who was not. And so we get this idea of reward and punishment from this story. That those who were faithful to God, for those who did what he wanted and asked, and for those who weren't, there's reward and there's punishment. And then the last story that we see in Matthew 25 is a story about sheep and goats at the end times and how God is going to separate two groups of people, on one side sheep, one side goat. And really we see that there's one side of folks who lived for themselves, who really had no concern for others, who kind of took what they had and, and, and used it on their own pleasures and just life. And then there was another group of people who, who were compassionate, who were considerate, who used what God had given them to, to uh, sustain, to help, to encourage, to pray for, to, to be a help to the other folks. And so he says, hey, there's, there's two groups of people here. And in the end of this, he talks about an eternal judgment. And the, and the, and the, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this story, but in regards to where we're at, and, and what we're looking at is the idea of an eternal judgment. That there's going to be a point where he, w- one group will be judged one way and one will be judged the other way. And for us to get a picture of that, I want us to look at Romans chapter 20, where it describes that day of judgment. In a Ro- uh, not Romans, I'm, 
sorry, Revelation chapter 20. I have no idea uh, where the Romans came from. It's just both start with R. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, we're going to read that together. And it says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and great books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Very similar to the stories that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What we see here on that day of judgment is this, when we talk about eternal judgment, is that everyone was judged. And I know we have a, 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 a popular saying in our culture that says, don't judge me, and, and in some ways that's appropriate. It's not our job to judge each other. Uh, but, but the idea of judgment uh, is coming on every single one of us from God. No one is going to escape eternal judgment. And here's the difference. What Revelations chapter 20 and really a, uh, a lot of verses, the end of Revelations here explain it, is that the righteous are going to be rewarded and everyone else will be punished. And so there's this idea, uh, idea of eternal judgment that those who are righteous, who are right standing with God, are going to be rewarded, and that those who are not, those who were not faithful to God, who abandoned God, or who did all these kinds of things, just weren't in relationship with God, they'll be punished. And that's the idea of eternal judgment, a reward and punishment at the end. So what, what does all this matter? The idea of uh, of uh, resurrection from the dead and then an eternal uh, judgment. What does that mean for you and for me today? And it means this. It means what you do now and how you live matters. It doesn't just matter for the here and now, but it matters for an eternity. You see, for when you die, you will be judged you will either be clothed in immortality and given eternal life, or you'll be severely punished. Those are going to be the two options. And I know this sounds hard, it sounds harsh, and how dare we live in a culture that says, hey, there is no hell, there's no punishment, that, that's fear, that's all of these kinds of things, but I have to tell you, that's not what Scripture tells. Okay, That's not what God tells us. In fact, God tells us that he loves us so much that he sent his son so that, so that as few people as possible would have to experience the punishment and eternal separation from him. He actually wants as many people as possible to be clothed in immortality and be given eternal life. And so he said that his judgment has been delayed. It's been deferred for a time. In fact, oftentimes when I find myself praying, God, would you come soon? I feel a little bit of a, 
guilt in praying that because there are so many people I know and so many of my friends who don't know Jesus Christ who if he came back today they would face eternal punishment. And so we have to understand something that Paul writes to us in, the, in Corinthians, he writes to us in Colossians, he writes to us in, in Thessalonians. In all those pieces, he talks about uh, uh, resurrection, he talks about judgment, and he often uses the, the words, encourage one another with these things. And for you and I, who are, who are believers, these are encouragement, encouraging things to us. The fact that my life lived out for God. The, the complexities around it, the faith that's required, the, the obedience when, when my friends and, or my family members are living a different life and they're acquiring wealth or attending parties and doing things that somewhere in my heart and soul I want to be a part of, but I know that that dishonors God. And I choose God and I sacrifice those things. It's, it's an encouragement for me to know that God sees those things and that I will be rewarded by Him for choosing Him over those. That's an encouragement to me. And it should be an encouragement to you. But keep in mind for you who are believers that just as these words are an encouragement to you, they are condemning to the unbeliever. And oftentimes they'll be met with hostility and rejected. Who wants to think they're being condemned? Especially by something they don't believe. What is our response to this? What is our response to the idea, the, the knowledge, the teaching, the truth of the fact that we're going to be resurrected from the dead, giving a body suitable for immortality and eternal life, and that we're going to be rewarded by God, not only rewarded with heaven, but He's going to see the work that you do here on earth, and He's going to reward each according to their work done here. So, I don't know what that means in heaven. I don't know if that means uh, I get a bigger house or I get to drive a nicer car in heaven. Honestly, I don't think it means either of those things. I think it's a reward that we're unaware of. Something that's much better than a nice house and a car. Because for me, honestly, uh, my house, I love my house. But I have to work on my house. I have to maintain my car. Whatever that reward is, it's going to be better than anything we've experienced here on earth. What do I do in response to this information? Well, I love how the Apostle Paul concluded his teaching here in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 58. He said this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I look at this verse and I see a couple of things of what we need to do. That one, stand firm in your faith. That when you look at the world around you, you know that there are times and pieces where God asks you to live differently than the people around you. And sometimes that's really hard. It's hard to live differently. 
It's hard to be committed in faith and committed in offerings and committing to serve and committing to do these things when your friends around you are enjoying things that, that are desirable. He says, stand firm in the things that I have shown you and teach you. Don't worry about them. If you'll stand firm and stay committed, your reward is going to be great, worth way more than anything that you're missing out here. So he says, stand firm. And I challenge you today, if you're a believer, stand firm in your faith. Do not give in to the things of this world. Do not give in to the easy road or the wide path. Or don't, don't allow those small things to creep into your heart that says, well, this little sin's okay. God has grace for me. Like, all of these things are from the devil to lure you away, to deceive you, to discourage you, to have you abandon Christ. Stand firm. Continue in his way and in his word. Let nothing move you. I also see this. He says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Here's something that I, when I see it in Christendom, I don't uh, understand. And it's the fascination with the afterlife. That people's hearts and minds are always what's going to happen uh, then, what's going to happen then, what's going to happen to me, uh, you know, after this, and these debates, and this, this intensity in, in focusing on the end. He wants you to live now. He wants you to exercise the wisdom, the gifts he's given you, the energies he's given you to, to fulfill his kingdom's purpose here and now. He gave us the answers of what's going to happen when we die you're going to be resurrected from the dead with a, with a, with a, a new, uh, imperishable body, and you're going to be rewarded when you get to heaven for what you've done here on earth. So give yourself fully to the work of the Lord now. Don't keep hoping for another day. And Well, when that day comes, while you're sitting on your couch eating potato chips, watching soap operas, it doesn't cut it. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord now, because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain, that the work you're doing here, what you're applying yourself to here, uh, isn't just going off into an abyss somewhere. Nobody's noticing, nobody's recognizing, I'm just going to die at the end anyway. No, God is going to reward you for your work here. The third thing, what is the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is many things. We can have a lot of topics around this, but let me, let me uh, sum it up this way for you. The work of the Lord is that none should perish. And so he wants us within, his, within being obedient to his word and within the creativity he's given us and the gifts that he's given you to apply yourself so that those around you who don't know Christ can escape eternal punishment. That's your work. And whether you apply yourself in, in full-time ministry, where you're, where you're preaching, or you're teaching, or you're learning, or you're applying, or whether you're, you apply yourself in the workplace where you're having conversations with friends and coworkers, or, or, or you're applying yourself to living like you should in front of people differently, that your work is to lead a life and lead other people to Christ. 
in one way, shape, or another. That's the work of the Lord. Give yourself fully to that. My heart breaks when I consider that if Jesus came back today, there's many people I know that would be judged to eternal damnation. My heart breaks over that. And we should give our energies and our our mental faculties and our gifts and all these kinds of things, our talents, to lean in and see that we can bring as many people as possible to heaven with us. People you like, people you don't like, and everyone in between. That's the work of the Lord. Let's give ourselves fully to it. That is our response to this. Live here, live now, and let the knowledge that someday your master is going to return and ask you to give an account for what you've done. And for those who have done well, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to be rewarded. And for those who didn't believe and were lazy and just didn't take him serious, there'll be punishment. And that's the foundational teaching of Scripture that affects our faith. It affects why we, why we evangelize. It affects why we come to church. It affects why we, we offer our gifts. It affects why we work for the Lord. All of this understanding of being resurrected and, and an eternal judgment affects why we do what we do. And so this morning as I close our, our topic of our foundation of our spirituality, a good understanding of what happens after we die is necessary to help you live the life here and now that God wants you to live. When you understand what happens after you die, you will live differently now than if you didn't. And so my hope would be today, one of two things, that you are encouraged by these words, you're encouraged to work for the Lord, as Paul said here, to stand firm and to always give yourselves to the work of the Lord. That you would continue in your relationship with Jesus Christ and allow that to grow and, and cultivate that so it gets stronger. That you would be obedient and use the things that He's given you to impact the people around you. And the other second response is this. If you're sitting here today and you don't have a faith in Jesus Christ, if your thoughts of what happens to you after you die don't line up with what I just read and the thought of death worries you, I challenge you to, to invite Jesus Christ into your heart so that your name can be written in that book of life like we read in Revelations chapter 20. Because my heart, the reason that I do what I do is because I don't want to see anybody experience eternal punishment. And so you can... Uh, run to a loving God who sent His Son into this earth so that you could have eternal life and be with Him. And that's why He sent Jesus Christ. And so stop denying Him. Stop walking away from Him. Stop doing as you please and finally turn and look fully into His face and say, I receive you today. Would you come into my life? Would you be and live in me That's my hope for your response today. I want to pray for you this morning. Um, I don't know if we had any prayer re- uh, requests come in. Thank you, Lisa. I notice Lisa's not on this prayer request list, but we're going to pray for her anyway because 
she's a trooper. She's giving birth on Tuesday to Lucy, and she's here this morning uh, doing stuff, and we, uh, everyone in this room admires her, that's for sure. Um, Karen wants us to pray for Darnell. Uh, they're still employed and deemed essential and just uh, God's protection from COVID and, um, and those kinds of things. Um, that's on here twice. So we'll just pray. That, and, then, um, and then the Conover's Jeff got called into work. And again, prayers of protection. And so, you know, as we respond and we start going back to work, we start gathering again together in, in workplaces. And, uh, you know, the virus is still out there. So we're, we're going to pray for all of us for uh, protection as we engage the world and begin to gather together in various ways and forms with safety measures that, that, this, um, that he protects us. He's, he's, and he's capable, amen? And then we'll pray uh, for the canals. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you for your word and your teaching and your telling us of what's going to happen after we die. For Lord, it helps us live as we should here in preparation for that day. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by these words to to live now, to apply ourselves, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, to stand firm in our faith. I also pray, Lord, that the idea of resurrection and eternal judgment, Lord, would spur those who haven't believed to, to open their eyes and their heart to you, that they would escape, that they would see Jesus Christ as your loving messenger as the messengers from from God, God himself coming and saying, hey, I'm here. I'm giving you an opportunity and an option to escape eternal damnation. And Lord, I pray that we would turn our heart and our lives into Christ and to serve him and him only. Lord, I pray for our, our congregation members uh, really our community, Lord, as we begin to engage in work, as more people start going back to work and um, as tourists begin to come into our community from off Cape, uh, Lord, the, the ideas and the threats of, of this uh, virus growing, Lord, I pray that you'd protect us all. I pray, Lord, that the, the trend of the, of the virus would continue to uh, go down that there'd be less new cases, that there'd be less deaths, and that it would eventually, Lord, work its way uh, out. Um, but Lord, I pray specifically for your protection over our congregation as they work for, uh, for Karen, for Darnell, for Jeff specifically. Uh, Lord, that you would be with them as they work. But Lord, all of us really, as we engage our community, as we engage our work, as we engage our family, Lord, continue to protect us as we do the work that we need to do. And lastly, Lord, I pray for the Connells as on Tuesday, Elise will go in and give birth to Lucy. And we pray, Lord, for your presence to be there. We pray for uh, a birth, Lord, that's joyous, that's free of complication, uh, that's full of quick recovery, that's full of health, that's full of life. And Lord, may we, when we're able to come back together, celebrate a new member of our body. Lord, we thank you for your work that you're doing in our, in our church and in our community, and we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to do that. We ask you these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.
Amen. Church.